0: Welcome to Makeup Lessons for Life. I'm your host, Sharon Braxton. Thanks for joining us. Our special guest today has a remarkable story of how God can strategically promote you from a place of having no real plans for your life to working and being a beacon of light in the highest place in our nation. So you need to stay tuned because you don't want to miss not a moment of her story. But first, I just want to say that I know that these have been really challenging times these last few months. For many of you, it's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of uncertainty. And when you have that, a lot of times it produces fear and anxiety. But I just want you to remember something that my co-host always says, God is large and in charge. And then I wanna remind you that he is more than able, I mean more than able to supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So when you feel afraid or you're doubting, just sit still, get quiet before him and allow him to bring you the peace that surpasses all understanding. And then speaking of my co-host, here is Peggy Fraser O'Connor, who happens to also be the executive producer of the show and my trusty friend and sidekick.
1: Hi Peggy. Hey sweetheart, how are you? I'm good. Um, I'm glad to see you, even though I'm seeing you on a screen again. No, it's not the same, but it's, the it's next not quite too. like hanging your, hugging your neck. You know, I I laughed. I saw something on Facebook that somebody said. You know, you, during this time, you really need to check on your friends that are the huggers because they're not doing well. I'm <laughs> <laughs> one of those people. I miss hugging your neck, Sharon. I really do, being with you. But thank God for technology. We get to be here today and share the wonderful story of my friend, uh, Jan. And I wanted to just share with everybody how I actually met this amazing person. You remember back about almost six or seven months ago, we had our launch party, Mm -hmm. uh, our podcast and what we were doing. We threw this amazing party. And actually, we had some of the people that we have interviewed already come to this party. And it was uh, Colonel Ken Cordier and his wife were there. And so they said, we want to come to the party. And if you want to check out Ken's uh, podcast, you really need to hear parts one and two, and you'll find out all about who he is. But they were hosting jan for the for the weekend that we were having this party and they said we would love to come but we have this guest can we bring her and i said absolutely bring her and so she came up afterwards and was just so affirming and so precious to me but one of the things she did that i have to tell you which helped me to know this was a divine appointment she makes these little sachets of fragrances and she said i have a gift for you and she said she held out her hands and she said pick what you would like and i picked one and i have to tell you The scent of it was gardenia. And I don't know this lady at this point. She's a stranger. But gardenia is my favorite flower. Mm -hmm. And what makes it so precious to me is that even as a child, when I was a little girl, like for Easter or any kind of my birthday, my father used to get me a wristlet. You know how we all used to wear corsages and all that? He used to get me a wristlet of gardenias. Oh, wow. That he would put on my arm. And so when she gave me that and I grabbed it and I smelled it, I can't tell you, I, I I almost, it was sort of like an out-of-body experience there for a minute, because I felt my father, both fathers, present with me that night. when we were going to launch it. We were launching on faith, Sharon. You know, we were launching on faith. And it was like the Lord was with us at that party saying, I see what you're doing, and I have sent this woman to you to give you this gift to for you to know that you are a sweet-smelling fragrance. And... We said, hi, how are you? And it was kind of like you and me in that gym when I first met you, Sharon. We just said, hi, hello, and we hit the ground running. And that's kind of the way it's been with Jan. She is this incredible person that I came to find out. has an amazing story, and I can't wait for you to share. So take it away, Sharon.
0: Well, our special guest today is Jan Burmeister, and she joins us all the way from St. Louis, Missouri, via the internet. Jan grew up, actually, with no real definitive plan for her life. After high school, she thought, oh, I'd go to college for a while, get married maybe work a little and then have a couple of kids. So she enrolled in business school to get some marketable skills, but it all seemed like a hapless venture without any clear direction. Although Jan didn't have a plan for her life, God sure did. (laughs) Little did she know that she had enrolled in what she now calls God's private university, and that God would use all of her training to prepare her for work that would have a lasting impact on her life and countless others. God strategically opened doors for Jan to work in a variety of places, including Disney, an international consulting firm, a national radio ministry, the U.S. Olympics, a Billy Graham crusade, the Department of Homeland Security, and the White House for five U.S. presidents. That's right, five presidents, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush 41, and Bush 43. Jan truly lives life on purpose with a purpose, and for over 40 years now, God has used all of her skills, talents, her gifts, her passion, and experiences to intricately weave together a tapestry that reveals His power and sovereignty over her life, and His grace and mercy that has covered her every step of the way. Chan, it's good to see you too,
2: even though it's through a screen. I miss you. I haven't seen you in a long time. How are you doing? I'm just doing great and it's so good to see you across the miles. Well,
0: you know, that is a pretty impressive set of credentials for a young woman who said that she didn't really have any plans for her life, Jan. That's a lot. Jan, what defines who you are and the kind of opportunities you've had?
2: Yeah, Sharon. Uh, watching the Lord take care of me in between jobs from city to city, all the in-betweens over the years. It made it made me learn to lean on him totally. For provision for even for job fulfillment so along the way somewhere i don't remember where but i stopped who am i and i only had to remember whose am i and that made all the difference you know that's something we
0: all have to realize though you know we ask the question who am i but as long as we know whose we belong to we belong to god that's and true. he's He's in charge of the things we understand and the things we don't understand. <laughs> He's go. still in charge. Well, this is actually the first time, Jan, that I've ever interviewed someone who worked at the White House. So I'm a little bit of starstruck, I have to say. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to ask you, what is it like to work
2: at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, speaking of starstruck, I mean, the first time you work there, for the first couple of days, you days, you just keep pinching yourself to see if it's real. And then after a couple of days, you, while you never lose the wonder of the presidency or even the historic surroundings you, you're privileged to be in, you realize all the players are people like you and me. Mm-hmm. And then you finally grasp the seriousness of your job and you get to work.
0: I can only imagine. I'm just thinking walking through the front door. You know, I'm already like, ooh, ah." (laughs) just the awesomeness of it all. Well, you know, you've had so many wonderful experiences, Jan, and it would take hours and hours and hours actually to go over all of them in detail. And I wish we could. But since we only have an hour, I'm going to jump right in and just try to tell as much of your story as we possibly can. And I want to start back with your upbringing. I know you were raised in a Christian home. Tell me a little bit about that. Well,
2: I was the middle of five kids. A lot of people know about that situation. Um, so I have nothing, though, but sweet childhood memories. My mom and dad took us to church and Sunday school. Every night we had devotions at the family dinner table. I love that. And then they took us in with nightly prayers. I was so blessed. And then every Christmas, mom would even put us our little choir robes on that she made and take us to the nursing homes, the Christmas carol. Oh, I know. You know, my parents always led by example and taught us servanthood, good stewardship, gratitude, and generosity, and I, that's, all of those stuck with me to this day.
0: They really did, based on your story, it really stuck. Well, you know, I know you were exposed, as you're saying, to Christ from an early age. Did you feel like you had a personal relationship with Him?
2: You know, interesting question. I, I always loved the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the painting of him as the good shepherd, but I didn't get that up-person, personal thing until I was out on my own. I always knew he was the savior, but now all of a sudden I needed a personal comforter, a trust, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and a partner to walk with me every day. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: it's so different to go from that head knowledge to that heart experience because so many of us have been there, Jan. We've learned the scriptures. We've learned the prayers. We've been and heard so many great sermons, but it's still just head knowledge until it really gets challenged, you know, and you've got to put some heart to it. Well, I know that you shared with us that you had a true revelation of who Christ was a little later when you were in your 30s, and it's such a wonderful experience. When we get to that, I'm going to let you really tell about that. But before then, I want to talk a little bit about school, because you told us that you weren't really a strong student in the classroom, and Jen, I really find that hard to believe. I I do, too. think that's true. (laughs) That is
2: not true, is it? Okay, okay. Well, probably because I had no career goals. I mean, I couldn't see the need for half the stuff they were teaching us in school. So I didn't really apply myself. Now, now I realize that just the experience of going to school and learning, no matter what the topic is, that's the real benefit of schooling and education. But well, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say you were just ahead of your time. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's
0: right. I know a year after college, you worked as a receptionist and clerk and decided to enroll in business school. So how did your training
2: in business school help to prepare you for your future jobs in the corporate world? Well, first of all, I didn't want to be a receptionist all my life. I mean, I, I, after the first year, I knew that. And I needed some good skills to market myself. Um, Besides shorthand and typing, which I was very good at, this great school I went to, business school, taught me writing and correspondence, budgeting, record keeping, even interpretation of financial statements and legal documents. That is serious.
0: Well, I know that your first job out of business school was secretary to the chairman of the board for an investment firm and that you were doing correspondence and keeping records, but with the long hours you wanted a change, And I thought it was interesting that you came up with an idea that you wanted to present to the Disney, Disney Corporation, in hopes of getting a job there. Now, Jan, that is pretty gutsy,
2: girl. You're going (laughs) to present an idea to Disney. What was it? Well, okay. Uh, One one thing is that the investment firm I left was G.H. Walker & Company, and that happened to be owned by George Herbert Walker Bush's uncle in St. Louis. Oh, Okay. And that's where I first heard the name George and Barbara Bush, so interesting. Tuck that away for a little bit. Um, Okay, my idea for Disney was to take the fascination of the costumed characters and take them around the country to schools and hold assemblies, using their fascination to impress kids about traffic safety, drug awareness, things like that. And my proposal, it was all wonderfully illustrated. It had a process, a budget, the project was too large for their educational materials division and too small for the corporation. So I was about ready to leave when they said, "You know what? We need somebody that can write to travel with the characters and promote Disney on Parade." And that sounded kind of fun. Um, so in the one and a half years that I was with Mickey Mouse and Alice in Wonderland, I learned to all <laughs> advance work, public relations, events planning, TV and radio production, and public speaking. Oh my goodness. And I think it's interesting that
0: all of those things, that advanced public relations, all of that, you were going to need all of that later. Didn't know it back then. I know, but I'm just thinking, and I know it was a lot of work, but it
2: had to be fun with Mickey and Minnie on each side of you. Was that fun? (laughs) Yes, and there are a lot of stories I can't tell you about that either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, when Disney on Parade shut down in 1974, all the fun was over, and you were out of work, and you're looking for a job, and you ended up attending a 10,000-member church pastored by Jack Hayford, I love him, where you met Pat Boone. So I know that God opened a door for you to work as a publicist for various ministries. Who were you working with, and what were you doing?
2: Well, Pat Boone's Christian Booking Agency had a lot of clients, about 35 clients, and they asked me to set up a public relations firm of that company to generate well, you know, press kits, news releases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Book appearances and interviews, Hold press conferences, and then keep press clipping books for all of them. Now, some of those were, you'll remember, um, gospel singer Andre Kraut. Oh, oh yes, yes. And, and the actress, Carol Lawrence, um, uh-huh. Dino the pianist. and Oh, yes. oh and Dino, Nathalie my daddy Dino. loved Dino. Um, oh, yes. And James Dobson. So, okay. you can press kits on all of them. And that included stories and pictures and background. Um, now, remember, back then, it was 1975 was still largely before computers. So there was a lot of typing, copying, manual assembling, phone calling, snail mailing. You remember that? I kind of mm-hmm.
0: remember snail mail a little bit. You know, it's, it's funny to think about. You can't even remember now when there were no computers. But there weren't. And,
2: you know, that typewriter was your friend. It was. No cell phones. So, um, with that little company up and running, I turned to freelancing, because um, it, it sounded like fun to get back on the road, so the Johnny Man Singers, I don't know if you remember them, um, mm-hmm. actress Greg Morris, I did a golf tournament for him, Uh Light, the, the publisher, the Christian publisher, had a lot of authors that needed promotion
0: tours, so I did those. Well, you know, free, freelancing is fun, because you have a variety of projects, you get to do a lot of different things, however, it's not steady work you know, and it can be hard because sometimes when it's over, it's just over. So I know in this case, you did end up signing on to work with a Brazilian, oh, that sounds fun, Brazilian musical that was set to tour the U.S. for two years. And although you loved your work, you got to minister to the performers, the show lost its backing. I know, Peggy, you know about that. A show is all up and going. And then it loses its backing. And you guys, Jen, you end up closing in, in your second U.S. city that just so happened
2: to be Washington, D.C., though. That was a tough time for you, right? Oh, man, yeah. I mean, just when I thought I'd found my niche, all of a sudden I didn't have have a job, didn't have a car, didn't have a place to live. I had stored all my stuff for two years. Oh, wow.
0: And it's just over. And when it's over, it's over. (laughs) But you know what I like is it seemed like a setback. Like you said, you lost everything. But really, God was setting you up because you're in D.C. and you end up. Having a divine appointment with
2: some friends you knew from L.A., what happened? Yeah, before I was going to go back home to St. Louis and kind of regroup, figure out what to do next, some of my Los Angeles friends were visiting St. Louis, and we all went out to dinner. Some of their friends were also at the dinner, and they happened to work at the White House. They told me that they were looking for press advance people they didn't have to train that were available immediately. I raised my hand. (laughs) They were planning the President Ford's barnstorming home stretch election
0: run. So I signed on. (laughs) Jan, I mean, I'm putting myself in your place. I'm just having dinner with some friends from L.A. The last (laughs) thing I think they're going to throw out at me is
1: a chance to work for a campaign, a presidential campaign. Are you shocked? I got to ask a question here. Okay, I'm listening to all this, and I'm just wondering, you know, you're having these opportunities that just come your way. Are you, like, ever afraid, or are you just, like, here an opportunity, and yes, that's for me, and we're going to go and charge? Or that's is it? Or do you go with any kind of fear in all this, or you just have this inner sense that this is what you're supposed to be doing? Well, the opportunities were always a surprise, and that
2: was exciting in itself, and made it was exciting enough to make me say, yes, I'll try it.
0: So you are a pretty courageous woman. That's what I was going to say, Peggy, pretty courageous. Courageous or desperate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that too. (laughs) But but you did tell me that it was the most exciting six weeks of your life up to that point. Did you get
2: to meet President Ford? Well, you know what made it so exciting, first of all, was that after begging for publicity from the media for years, It was great to make one phone call to the wire service, announce that there would be a presidential press briefing, and 25 to 30 media outlets would show up. Of course. Yes, I met President Ford face-to-face twice. Once I rode with him in the cockpit of a hydrofoil across the bay in Seattle to a peer rally that I had set up, and that, that peer rally was to be the campaign photo of the day, and sure enough, it was on the front page of the newspaper the next day. Wow and then again I I met him uh, as he was boarding Air Force 1. He was personable, dignified, really a true man of integrity. I liked him a lot. You have um, to be pretty
0: outgoing to do what you're doing. And I didn't know you back then, but I see the outgoing that was in. You have to be a little gutsy and outgoing, but you've already shown that by writing a proposal to Disney, so (laughs) I think think you had the ingredients. Well, unfortunately, President Ford narrowly lost the 1976 election. However, just working gave you a chance to see that you really like this Washington business, so you decided to pack up everything and make that move from California to D.C., and I know that you worked for the U.S. Postal Headquarters, and you worked for General Brent Scowcroft as an office administrator in his international consulting firm, but then in 1979, God opened that door for you to work at the White House. What happened?
2: <laughs> well, okay, so the international consulting firm—it was—it was great because I was using my skills, but it wasn't as exciting as some of the other things i have done. I thought about going back to St. Louis though, because I missed my family and. Yeah. I knew I could get another job there somewhere, doing something, anything. Um, but then my White House friends that I had, had gotten to know really well said, "Well, you know, before you leave Washington D.C., you really should work in the White House complex just for the experience of it all, and then go back." home. Yes, I I agree. <laughs> in the in the third year of an administration, a lot of people that were brought in in the beginning get disenCHANTed and go home. So in the Carter administration, some staff had already left and gone back to Georgia. They needed people with administrative skills to fill the gaps. Hello. And I passed all the typing tests with flying colors. And I started in presidential correspondence on November the 5th of that year, the day the hostages were seized at our embassy in Iran.
1: Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Wow. I know. So we so were you right started Hold on. You started the day that the hostages were taken? Right. Right. November the 5th.
2: And then after being detailed to the West Wing several times, they offered me a permanent job in the chief of staff's office just two doors down from the Oval office. I mean, okay, Jan, you go
0: from I've never worked in the actual White House to now I'm working in the chief of staff's office in the West Wing, two doors down from the president, Jan. I do want. I do want to know, though, since, as Peggy said, it's the same time as those hostages were being seized. What was the tone like? What What did it
2: feel like? Was it very tense um, during that time in the White House? Well, all the all the days were fashioned around global and national events. That that always drove the day's priorities. So, yeah, I, it was. And all of a sudden, you saw people running back and forth, and big meetings being held in the larger rooms. And yeah, flexibility was the key, though flexibility was the key. I can only imagine the type of security that you had to go through just to work there. Well, any any government uh, official has to go through an FBI background check. And it, you're, you go for a level of clearance, and of course at the White House it would be top secret. Um, and then they give you a badge, a color-coded badge that tells the guards and the other staff what access to grant and to who, and then what level of material you can see or or deal with right clearances yeah i'm familiar with that well what was a typical day like for you uh long long hours, long <laughs> hours. <laughs> and just yeah exhausting and then i would go home and turn on the news to see what happened at my office that day
1: <laughs> <laughs> my
2: word it's interesting sometimes when you work long hours you just work long hours but
0: sometimes when you work long hours it is very fulfilling work to you though was it fulfilling to you It
2: was. It was because you saw results of of what you were doing, all your efforts. The phone calls I took from general public from around the country and and were able to help them
0: in ways that nobody else could. It was wonderful. Well, I know that during this time, you connected with the staff at the Christian Embassy, and that's a branch of Campus Crusade, and you were instrumental in securing the speaker for the White House Conference. Jen, that's great. Talk a little bit
2: about that. Okay. um, The Christian Embassy was involved in planning a White House conference on families um, for the Carter administration. And they were looking for a strong Christian family advocate, not a pastor, who was well-respected in the secular world to lead the conference. Well, harking back, I asked if they'd ever heard of James Dobson. (laughs) They said no. So I handed them the first kit I'd written five years before. And Dobson ended up being the keynote speaker of the conference. That is
0: God, God, God. They would have never known about him, but you had obviously already worked with him.
2: Well, it, it reminds me of how he uses Johnny Appleseed. You know, mm-hmm. He, he tr- takes you with a load of seeds and transplants you across the country to sow. That's what happened. Well, since you were in the chief
0: of staff's office, which is, as you said, so close to the Oval, did you have an opportunity to ever meet President Carter and talk with him or spend time with him?
2: Kind of like Ford, I, uh, you know, in passing, I mean, I saw him when he came into Hamilton Jordan's office, the chief of staff, or I ran into him in the hallway or at staff events. If it was somebody's birthday in the West Wing, we'd have a party in the Roosevelt room. Mm. Um, but I, did, I didn't sit down and personally one-to-one with him. I worked for people that did, but I did not personally. He was, though, very soft-spoken and kind. He was a true Southern gentleman. It always appeared that way, that he was a Southern yeah. gentleman. He did.
0: So what I think is neat, though, is you told us earlier that you got a chance to attend a Bible
2: study at the Department of Commerce. What was that experience like? Well, you know, fellowshipping with other Christians in the federal government was so uplifting, and it was reassuring, not not just to know that they were there spreading salt and light, but to be reminded how blessed we were to be able to meet like that. I'm not sure that's the case these days, but back then it was, and it was wonderful,
0: You know, it is wonderful. I remember when I was working at the Texas Supreme Court as a briefing attorney, and one of the justices was a Christian, and he sensed that Mm -hmm. I was just based on some things that I had said. And he said, Sharon, before work starts twice a week, I have a Bible study in my office. Would you like to come? And I did, and it's always good in governmental settings, though, when you can find like-minded people, and as one, you can come together
2: and pray. That's always good. And you know how you do that? That's why it's so important to drop little hints like bless people and say bless you or man i'm gonna have to pray about that and instantly they know where you're at they do they do know well
0: while working in the chief of staff's office you you told me this funny story uh well really i don't know how funny
2: it is when it involves fire and smoke but
0: (laughs) why don't you share it it was kind of funny
2: oh my gosh well there were fireplaces in some of the larger offices in the west wing and chief of staff's office was one one really cold, wintry morning, he was going to have a meeting, and there was a real big pill in his office, so I was going to light the fire. And I did, uh, so that the room would warm up, but nobody told me the flu wasn't open. Oh, boy. Oh, no. And it was just a matter of two minutes. The Oval Office hallway was filled with smoke. And I, I doused the fire with two pots of coffee, but not in time to keep the service from running everywhere in a panic. Uh, I didn't live that one down for a long time. Because I was
0: going to say, did you stand there and say it wasn't me? I don't know what
2: happened. I was the only one there. Oh <laughs> no!
1: So you couldn't get out of
2: that one very easily. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> Well, I know that when
0: Ronald Reagan and George Bush were elected in 1980, you were already in the White House and you are ready to serve, but it wasn't to be, at least
2: not yet. What kept you from serving? Well, uh, the permanent job I ended up taking in the West Wing was actually a political appointee slot. I guess I didn't realize it at the time, or I just knew so very little about politics. I didn't know that was going to mean departure at the end of the uh, President Carter's term. And that's just the way it works in Washington. Anybody hired into an appointee position by a president has to leave. You're required to turn in a resignation. Wow, okay. Well, I know your
0: White House job was over on Reagan's Inauguration Day, January 20th, 1981. But you know how God works, because right when that job is ending, a new job is opening up for you back in California with Pastor Jack Hayford to help start up his television and radio ministry and head up Living Way Ministries. And when we were talking before, you said that this is actually one of your most memorable experiences.
2: What made it so special? Well, and first I'm gonna mention that the day I left the White House was the day that Iran released our hostages. So that made the length of time for my White House captivity the same as theirs 444 days. Wow. That is amazing. I think God loves numbers, and that's a discussion for another day. Anyway, during my three years at Church on the Way in Van Nuys, my boss, Jack Hayford, who had written and composed, I think you might know, 300 hymns, and he released Mm -hmm. the popular hymn, Majesty. Love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's in so many hymnals now. I see it in so many hymnals. Um, His radio and television ministry grew exponentially, and We laid the foundations to archive and make his books and profound teachings available for decades to come. And today it's a subscription for pastors. So to be a part of that, that touched and changed hearts, it was so fulfilling. Meanwhile, under the leadership of Jack, a gifted Bible teacher, I gained so many new spiritual insights. My my faith grew and I recommitted my life to the Lord.
0: That is always so good to have that teaching that just changes everything. And I know that you was you were you were baptized again for the second time. I correct? was rebaptized, correct. Yeah. Well this rebirth and this rededication to the Lord you said was a turning point. It changed
2: the way you looked at your purpose and your career. Can you talk a little bit about that, Jen? Yeah, thank you Sharon, my makeover began as I realized my purpose in life was not just to have a great job but and to be good at it. God was blessing my smallest efforts and humbly watched him turn a table, typewriter, telephone, and post office box into a worldwide ministry. I I knew that to him, his wisdom and direction that made that happen, not my own scheme. And my prayer became, take me where you want to use me instead of help me get another great job.
1: That's really interesting because so many people do get their identity from what they do. But what you found is you had these amazing jobs and then God takes you here. And your identity becomes grounded in Christ. And you find out that that's where fulfillment is. Right. And that's for all
0: of us. And the other thing I'm thinking, Peggy, is as I've called Jan Gutsy, because you are. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, sometimes when you're outgoing and gutsy, you do rely on your own strength, your own Absolutely. wisdom, your yes. own steam to get you from point A to B to C to D. And it's, it's a trick. It's a trick of the enemy to make you think that you're... You're all hot stuff, and that's how you're getting where you're getting, when really it's God moving you from place to place. It's a lesson to learn from all of us, you know, from all of us. Well, in 1984, you and I have something in common, because in 1984, actually, I was in Los Angeles, visiting my brother, who lived there in Hollywood, right during the time of the Olympic Games. Uh and uh i do have to tell this funny story we didn't get a chance to go to any of the events whatsoever but we were driving in a car uh it was a rental car we didn't realize that the gas gauge on the car was broken but it was oh. so we didn't know when it was on e it was really on e it was some problem anyway we ran out of gas and it's four of us my siblings and myself and it, we ran out of gas we just couldn't go anymore and we were too near the Olympic Village or where or, or something was happening, that the police came and they're like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Why is your car parked on the side of the road? And we're like, uh, officer, we're just out of gas. We're not terrorists or anybody trying to hurt anyone. But I do remember so much the 1984 Olympics. And so when I read that you got a chance
2: to work at those games, that's so exciting. What were you doing? Well, a friend of my dad's, uh, Walter Barron, he was the vice chairman of one of the big eight accounting firms, uh, Ernst & Winnie. Mm -hmm. And Ernst & Winnie, E&W, was named as the result systems operators for the Olympic Summer Games. They produced all the results of all the games, all the events. And Mr. Barron, because of their position with the Olympics, and asked if I could take a six-month leave and come to work for them as their Olympic project director. Because of their role, they got tickets and they they were able to invite many, many clients from in, actually internationally. So I was to make sure that they all had good tickets and had a good time. Uh, Living Way Ministries was pretty well established, so I felt like I was, was free to do that. They, I had staff working on all everything that I, I was leaving behind. So um, with incredibly long working hours, we staged major events. We hosted VIPs from 21 states, managed an international hospitality suite at the Olympic headquarters hotel to Biltmore. And then I had a budget of almost half a million dollars, and it came off all better than it anticipated. And just, you're right, uh, everything came off so beautifully. Seeing the world come together for a common cause was so exhilarating. And uh, I also lost 15 pounds, so that was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did because I've lost 15 pounds just listening to what all you had to
2: know, do. That, that last two weeks, right before the game started, we were working 120 hours a week. Jan. Yep. Okay. Well, then
0: that makes my next question seem idiotic. I was going to say you didn't get to stick your, your head
2: in one event, did you, to watch one sporting event? <laughs> one event. I got to see the Greg Louganis uh, diving. Well, that was a good event to see. It was. He, he he got a 10 on that, and that was the only event I got to go to. <laughs> oh, wow. You have got to be proud of that experience. But I know as
0: just as that job was ending – Okay, Then you get a call from former President Ford colleagues who needed help putting together the Reagan-Bush inauguration which is going to put you back in D.C. just just in time to later accept a position as Director of Registration for the Reagan-White House Conference on Small Business. Now Jen, that's what I'm saying. I know you had the times in between. I know you did when this job ends and that job hasn't started. But God just knows how to weave you in and out. So now you're back in D.C. but you said this job in the Reagan White House really involved a lot of
2: travel. What do you mean by that? A lot? Yeah. Yeah. There was a conference in every state capital, uh, small business leaders in every state capital we met with. And there were sometimes two or three hundred people in, at, at each conference. And we did all 50 states in 18 months, plus a national wrap-up con- conference in D.C. So we moved every, every three or four days to another place. Well, Peggy,
0: I don't know about you, but I want to know from Jan, what was your secret for energy? What did you need to do? <laughs> we
1: need to follow it and sell it is what we actually need to do.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, we did. we ate pretty well. I mean, we did, and but it was adrenaline mostly. I bet you it was. And I bet when things were over, did you just find yourself crashing? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, after the Olympics, I slept for four days without waking up. Wow. I, I mean... <laughs>
0: Uh, well, in the midst of all this travel, did you did you ever get a chance to, to see Reagan or
2: meet him at all? Well, kind of like President Carter, I was only administrative support staff, so I met him in the halls and at staff events, but I worked for those who were with him constantly every day, and all I heard was positive things, that he was so engaging and informed and had a gift for surrounding himself with top-notch people and then appropriately delegating duties and responsibilities. I think that's why everybody loved him. Hmm. Well, I know, though, that you really had your sights set,
0: though, on working for Vice President George H. Bush and Barbara Bush because you felt like your convictions and your beliefs lined up with theirs. However, you told us it was an arduous process just to get on a 60% pay cut, and it just took a while for you to get on, but you did start on November 5th, 1987, and that was eight years to the day to the day that you began your first job at the White House. So talk a little
2: bit about working for Vice President Bush. What was that like? God loves numbers, eight years to the day. Um, yeah, the Vice President's staff is so much smaller than the President's staff. And he had brought a lot of people with him from Texas. So there weren't many openings. And the first one I got, it took me a year. I moved there in January and I didn't get the job till November, answering telephones oh, in wow. his scheduling office. Talk about a come down, but I was so intent on I felt called to work for them, and uh, I, I started writing responses to the mountains of invitations. It also was an election year, and I had to ex, uh, accept or graciously decline in his in his language. So I did that, and then within six months, I was asked to answer some of his personal mail. I connected with his executive assistant, who was a beautiful Christian, and she and I became good friends, and she came to rely on me to do some backup for her. Um, And while he he won the 1988 election, I helped sort, analyze, report to the president-elect and respond to the 110,000 congratulatories that came in from all over the world.
0: Jen, how do you do that? How do you respond to that many
2: pieces of correspondence? Well, first, they put you in a room, lock the door, and, and tell you to spin gold. <laughs> 110,000 envelopes. So you store them, first of all, and, and you can tell usually by the stationery, okay? The really fancy stationery. That's your corporate executives and your university presidents and your senators and your congressmen. Oh, yeah. 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 And then there's the general public. And also handwritten would be friends and family. Um, it was dangerous, though, because when I finally got around to opening the general public mail, there was a number 10 envelope with hand scrawling on it. And when I opened it up, it was a folded yellow pad sheet signed Sam Walton. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my so goodness. I had missed that on the first round, but he was, yeah, I, I, still, I still remember that. It was wonderful. Um, yeah. And we, we we had to answer through the diplomatic corps all of the foreign leaders that congratulated
0: him as well. Amazing. Well, I know you did tell me that you did have a thrilling experience traveling with the vice president on the fourth of July nineteen eighty
2: eight. What happened? Why was it so thrilling? Well, he was in Kenny Bunkport with his traveling staff. So and and Air Force Two is in Washington DC at Andrews. So I had to be at Andrews at 5 in the morning, and it was me and David Valdez, his photographer, were the only passengers on Air Force Two. And we oh, went to Kenny Bunfoot. talk about pinching yourself, uh, and we picked up the vice president and his traveling staff, and I'd made a 4th of July cheesecake, which I brought along and served to the vice president and his staff on the plane. Um then we were off to three Midwest cities because it was the Fourth of July, and and there were big events going on that he spoke at, appeared at. It was a campaign. Uh, we motored, We we also stopped at St. Louis, my hometown. Yeah. And down to the Arch, and uh, I got to see my mom and dad there for a few minutes. I'd called them the night before and told them to be there, um, and I'd also asked them to call me at two in the morning to make sure I was up in time to get to. the <laughs> <laughs> I set three alarm clocks and a phone call. I I couldn't miss it. Um, And then I remember getting back to my D.C. apartment later that night, calling my parents and saying, "Um, did I really see you and give you a hug today? It was surreal. surreal. (laughs) Amazing. Well, when
0: George H.W. Bush was elected president in 1988, that time you were able to stay on as part of his team. And I know another one of your memorable moments is getting to set up his Oval Office on Inauguration Day. I want you to take a minute and talk about what that experience was like.
2: Oh my. Um, Well, the outgoing president, whoever he is, leaves the Oval Office for the last time about 10 in the morning. They have coffee with the incoming, and and then they all go off to the Capitol for the ceremonies. Well, something kicks in at that time, because the the new president comes back after the inaugural parade about four in the afternoon, so that gives you six hours to transform that office, uh, place family photos, pictures, statues of his choice, books, personal stationery, indelible ink, throughout the office, and the study. There's a study and a dining room behind the Oval Office. It's a suite. So that has to be set up, too. And um, I was privileged to be part of a three-person team that did that for President Bush while he was up there being sworn in. And... In order to make sure the president's desk was empty, I I opened the drawer and found a note in the front to George from Ron. It was a little post-it note with a turkey on it, and it said, don't let the turkeys get you down. (laughs) Um, But most memorable for me, after we finished, I had a few moments alone to pray over the furniture and doorways of the Oval Office that God grant wisdom and strength and peace to all who enter and lead from this place.
0: Jan, I'm just listening. I I can't even imagine the awesome privilege, first of all, in even being in the Oval Office, straightening up and, and decorating and setting up. But then on top of that, to have a chance alone to pray over a room that the leader of the free world is going to make serious decisions in. And you are and you're praying for the anointing to be in that room. You never forget that, never. Never. Do you feel like God
2: had ordered your steps to be there at that moment, at that time? No question, Sharon. God put that thought to pray over the office in my heart at that very moment. Um, I believe he uses those privileged and humbling moments as a confirmation that when we're in his will, uh, he will be with us and and use us every step of the way.
1: You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking of the fact that it says in the word that we are to be ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. Mm. And here you are in a place where ambassadors will be coming from other nations. Uh. God places his ambassador in a place to do kingdom business. And that's not an accident. That's an appointment. I never thought of it that way. Thank
0: you. And what I love is that you're there on assignment. You are there to basically set up. Uh, the office in the suite, but you allowed the Holy Spirit's voice to still be in your ears because you could have just done your job, Jan, and walked out, but the Holy Spirit was prompting you, and you listened, and you were obedient. That is such, oh man, I I just, I get chills just thinking about what you had a chance to do. I know you were talking about his work ethic, and you were saying that he was in the office at 6 or 6.30 a.m. in the morning.
2: Well, um, they just, they spent almost all their free time doing things for other people when there were no cameras around, but from morning to night, I mean, there was, he he was there faithfully and then he would go out and and run uh, or go play tennis, Um, so he was, he was, he had so many great things, uh, personal health things about him, and he had a sense of humor, and he taught everybody to always be grateful and never forget the little guy. He was always thanking the stewards and the butlers and when they left, when they finally left the White House, the whole staff just stood there and cried. Wow. I know you were saying that
0: in his downtime, he would write letters to families who lost soldiers.
2: Yeah, he and, he and Mrs. Bushville spent a lot of time. I mean, they would go to Camp David and instead of relaxing, they would take portfolios of letters with them to answer. And his, his, he hand wrote, and it wasn't just a paragraph, it was two pages, to family who lost soldiers. And then he and she both would answer children's letters, and of course family and family letters, yeah. And we were asked to select general public letters for them to, to answer as well. Imagine being a parent who
0: lost a soldier and getting a two-page letter from the President of the United States handwritten. Well, I know you have a funny story about even answering the dog Millie's (laughs) (laughs) mail,
2: And Millie had her own book, so what was all that about? Well, Millie was very famous. I mean, she got a lot of coverage when she gave birth to five puppies in the White House, but then when the book came out, Ghost Written by Barbara Bush, about life in the White House, I mean, Millie got lots of mail. And we thought we were so clever, so we got Millie and dipped her paw in ink and slapped it on a couple of pieces of paper. <laughs> we cleaned it up and then we sent it to a rubber stamp company and said, please make rubber games for us. So we had thought we had the whole thing solved. However, uh, when the rubber stamp came back, the ink pad approach just didn't work. We would we would stamp it on, on a photograph and it would all bead up. So the FBI came to the rescue. They let us use their fingerprinting
1: <laughs> on the roller
2: to produce the paw print on <laughs> the paw and, the then, and then it was wet and it didn't dry for a long time. So we had to put powder drying powder on it. So on any given day you'd walk into my office and see two or three dozen doggy photos laying around waiting for the printed, right? Um, <laughs> during those days, um, if friends and family asked what I did at the White House, I told them I just couldn't talk about it. <laughs> well, I am going to have to say, when you
0: said that the book was ghostwritten by Barbara Bush, if it wasn't, and it was written by Millie, I'm going to be a little <laughs> Well, well I know that I know that when uh Pre- President Bush lost the race to President Clinton in 1992 they took you up on your offer to help them set up their post presidential office in Houston, Texas and so total you ended up working for them for 6
2: years. So what was the Houston experience like? Well the the Houston experience was just uh, the icing on the cake of the first family experience. I mean, I Throughout the six years, I love that they trusted their staff to handle their family and friends as they would have, because it was so important to them, and they previously had spent so much time doing all that themselves, answering all the mail, writing all the letters, and they let us take care of that. Now, once back in Houston, I was so glad to be able to set up the office, uh, have a lovely surrounding, and then to recreate some of the resources they lost when in transition from government to private sector i mean think of that at the white house he had the world switchboard at his he'd pick mm-hmm. up, say give me you know president gorbachev and mm-hmm. two minutes later he'd be, so uh, diplomatic phone systems were lost messages and language writers were lost i mean this huge staff we had 130 male readers and we had 25 uh writers male writers and and they would research and do it so i recreated all that by bringing the books with us that uh, collection of all that stuff that his that new staff could use.
0: Boy, I can only imagine how valuable you were to them, really. Well, I want to fast forward 10 years later, and some of your former White House colleagues asked if you were planning to come back to D.C. to serve the younger President Bush. What was your response?
2: Well, from uh, 94 to 2001, I was back in the Midwest, and I loved being close to family. I had absolutely no inclination of returning to Washington. Um, that all changed when September 11 happened. Uh, following the attack, the formation of a new cabinet department called Homeland Security was announced. And starting long term, broad based things from scratch seemed to be a gift I'd been given and used over the years. So my prayer partners confirmed that I was to go. Okay. And I felt called to go. Uh, I returned to Washington without a job yet, but an assurance that somehow I was going to be a part of setting up a new department. And you were.
0: Because you got a chance to work with Homeland Security, what was that like?
2: Well, uh, it was it was intense because you were pulling together twenty agencies from around the government under one umbrella, and um, it took a lot of diplomacy to coordinate the merging of those agencies. Um, they all had their own way of doing things. They all had their own language. So I was in charge of the lexicon, and we had knockdown, dragout sessions about what the meaning of a word was, because they were all going to have to change their training manuals as a result, Um, but we made it happen, and we wrote new handbooks, guidelines, managed um, uh, all the oral communications within the department, and and we actually enforced the use of of certain definitions. Then that extended across the government, Um, I was part of the, the federal exec sec council, and Every cabinet agency was represented, and they had to use the same language and definitions as well. Um, I was also the acronym queen (laughs) because in a a time of crisis, I mean, every agency had their own acronyms, and when you merge those lists together, there are duplicates. So when somebody used an acronym, it could mean this or this or this, and you better know what it meant. So some people had to give up their acronyms, and others had to change them. Uh, I was kind of in charge of that, too
0: you had to be so detail oriented and also i'm just thinking you know the world changed after 911 you know I it sure was does. just very different and so you're in the middle of all of that and what is it like
2: working for the son now you've worked for the dad and now you're working for the son what was that like well i did his personal mail but it was only until my clearance upgrade happened so i could go to homeland so it was it was not for a long time but but he was a he was a chip off the old block That's good. Well, you know,
0: as we wrap things up, I just wanted to ask you, though, Jan, you've had so many wonderful experiences over the years, um, but you never married and you never had children of your own, which was actually part a little bit part of your original plan.
2: Were you able to make peace with this in your heart? You know, that reality finally hit me when I turned 40. Um, But by then I had so many friends and extended family and so much job fulfillment I mean, all was so totally well with my heart and my soul. Um, I believe God actually gave me the gift of singleness because I've never been lonely or sad or regretful. Um, besides, I so know I could not have done half the things I'd done, including take care of my mother and father, had I been
0: married or ha- and had children. That's what I was going to say. You wouldn't have had the freedom to be used in yeah. so many different parts of the country. And I do know that you did get to take care of your mom and dad, and I know yeah. that was very special for you to get to do that and so i sit here and even though i didn't have the life that you've had i i can only imagine when you're quiet and you're just reflecting or you're reflective back ups downs triumphs tragedies think about it and share with us what lessons have you learned
2: well we've got to not only keep remembering that god's got a plan for our life but that the enemy does too one that's devised for our defeat And the front lines of that lifelong battle between those two plans are everywhere. Everywhere you look, in the family, the neighborhood, the workplace. So daily putting on the armor of God is essential. And that's done by being vigilant in prayer and in the word where he equips us with his wisdom and promises. And there we learn to have peace in tumultuous times, even coronavirus, and trust in his faithfulness for provision and strength and comfort. To me, the word I
0: think of with you is trust, too. You Mm -hmm. had to trust God. You trusted him with everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, when someone is packing up to move across country two or three times in their lives, you are trusting God that when you get there, all will be well and all will work out. And that is a lot of faith. What's next for Jan Bermeister? What's next?
2: Well, there's no giant career encore on my horizon. (laughs) Uh, so, many opportunities spring up daily because I'm doing a lot of volunteer work, staying in touch with hundreds of former colleagues and slowly but surely getting through my parents' files for from seventy one years of marriage when that's done, Kansas is here I come to be geographically closer to my siblings in the winter of my life. <laughs> Peggy, this is such a rich story, and it
0: has so many layers, so many layers. but what are your thoughts?
1: Well, Jan, I have to say that your life blesses me because you encourage me to continue to live life in the flow of God. Mm. When I was a child, I used to love coming to Dallas and going to Six Flags, and there was a place, a ride, I guess you would call it, called the Lazy River, where you would get into the water and you would lift your feet up off the bottom, and the water would just carry you around this river, wherever it would lead. And it's clear by watching you that your love and trust in the Lord has been so childlike that you have just released control and allowed him to take you wherever he wanted you to be. And my, 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 the scenery that you have been able to see along your journey. It is a life that I know that you never in a million years would have ever imagined for yourself. If that's true for you, then. I believe it's true for all of us because God is no respecter of persons. What if he desires that we would each live a life that is bold and beautiful and miraculous and filled with wonder at the magnificent journey he's prepared for us? What if we would not try to swim against the current or put our feet down in rebellion or resistance for whatever the reason, but instead, just like you, in simple faith and childlike trust, just lift our feet from the bottom and allow the precious Holy Spirit to carry us into His providential will for our lives. Mm. I think of the scripture, Sharon, in Ephesians three twenty through 21 that says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works in us to him be the glory in christ jesus that's you jan oh to believe that god is that nice that his love for us is that great and that his plans for us exceed the expectations of our wildest dreams if we could only like you jan grasp that what lives would we live Mm -hmm. well maybe somebody is listening jan that is wrestling with the lord They just can't believe that God would love them enough to use them in a unique and beautiful way. And they're resisting Him. Or maybe they're just afraid to let go of their own agenda and let Him take the reins of their life. Hmm. Would you pray for them that they would experience the freedom in Christ that you've experienced? Yes. Yes.
2: Let me pray. My
1: Lord and God, I
2: pray for all who hear us now that you would continually shape us and mold us and use us to advance your kingdom. Show us the gifts you've given us that make us unique. Then bless those gifts just like you did those loaves and fishes. Put the desires in their heart that fit your plan and purpose. As we listen for your voice, clearly lead us. Equip us, encourage us to walk in the special path you've prepared for each of us with humble availability, with joy, anticipation, and a grateful heart, I pray. Amen.
0: Jen, I have to say that it has been my privilege and my honor to, to meet you and get to know you and even admire you and be ministered to by just your life and your faith. And as Peggy said, it's like childlike faith, and that's what we're all supposed to have. Thank you so much for, for being Thank so you. open and sharing your story today. Thank you. Let's keep it going. Absolutely. <laughs> well, before we go, I just want to remind you to pick up your copy of Peggy's book, Makeup Lessons, A Testimony of Prayer Healing and Redemption at the Makeup Counter. Perfect read right now because you're going to see the miraculous power of God to work through the lives of women that never even knew what what was inside of them until they sat still and let God use them. So please pick up your copy. It's available at amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Also, please go to our website, mlforlife.com. We would love to get a comment from you or even a prayer request. Peggy and I are praying every day for you. We know that these have been challenging times. So please check us out and we look forward to hearing from you. We'd like to thank our recording engineer and editor, Scott Fraser, who is also a pastor, worship leader, and motivational speaker. Check out his website at nc3wilkesboro.com. That's W-I-L-K-E-S-B-O-R-O dot com. We'd also like to thank saxophonist Tom Braxton, our assistant recording engineer, and the one who is responsible for all the original music you hear in the show. You can check out his smooth jazz at www.tombraxton.com. This is a show about the transformation in people's lives and the journey of life that we're all on and there are lessons to be learned from one another. So please grab a girlfriend, a husband, a brother, anyone special in your life, and join us as we get real. Well, that's all the time we have for today. And until next time, please remember,
1: don't be afraid to sit down in the makeup chair. Because God is going to give you the makeover of a lifetime. For Sharon and me, bye now.